The Bible reading is from John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but it's his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samarian city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, Call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. 
He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sir and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. Amen. Last week, for the week of prayer for Christian unity, I went on a pilgrimage, not to Lourdes, uh, nor even to Canterbury, I'm afraid, but to the Temple Church, not far from here. And I was with a group from King's College London, where uh, many of you know I do some volunteering as the Baptist chaplain. We had actually hoped to get as far as Westminster Abbey, but as is often the way with journeys, things took a bit longer than we had anticipated. We began our pilgrimage at the chapel of Sir Thomas Guy, the Baptist founder of um, Guy's Hospital. It's not often known that he was a Baptist, but he was. He had made his money through the unusual combination of selling Bibles and investing in the slave trade. So he's not an unproblematic character. Anyway, then via Southwark Cathedral, we made our way over London Bridge, stopping to pray and reflect in a variety of churches. And then we made our way to St. Paul's Cathedral and finished in the astonishing Temple Church. Many of the churches we visited I'd been to before, but one discovery that has stayed with me was the ruined church of St. Dunstan in the East. I wonder if you know it. Originally established by the Saxons, it was rebuilt in 950 by Dunstan, later St. Dunstan, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, then Dunstan's church was destroyed by the Great Fire of London, only to be rebuilt 30 years later by none other than Christopher Wren. And then tragically, Wren's church was destroyed by the Blitz in 1941, and after several decades as a derelict ruin, the church was transformed into a picturesque garden and public space in 1967. 
Now, I'm telling you this story of our truncated pilgrimage and the history of St. Dunstan in the East. Leave it up for a moment, Andrea. Um, because in many ways, they are a metaphor for the point of my sermon this morning, which is that things don't always work out in life as you had intended them to. Sometimes you don't make your intended destination on the pilgrimage of life. Sometimes you build things only for them to come crashing down around you. Sometimes things don't work out as you intend them to. But here's the good news. Within the love of God, such things are not the end of the story. So, take a look at this photo, which I took last week at St Dunstan in the East. This is a fountain in the ruined church, placed where the altar would have been. And as we stood around it on our pilgrimage, one of the women with us in the group found herself quoting from John's Gospel. She said, Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. There was a moment of silence. And then she said, well, who wouldn't want that for their life? And as I thought back over the history of that site, with its story of ruination, rebuilding and restoration, and as I looked at the beauty of its current state, with the fountain bubbling gently, with seats for office workers and tourists to sit and rest, I thought of the woman at Samaria, the woman to whom Jesus said those words of blessing, promising the gift of the water of eternal life. Thank you, Andrea. We can lose the image now. The woman of Samaria was certainly someone who knew what it was for things not to turn out as she had hoped and planned. The story of her encounter with Jesus beside the well of Jacob includes this conversation about her marriages. It seems she has been, as they say, unlucky in love, having had five marriages and now living with someone who is not her husband. And we need to pause here for a moment and reflect on the way in which preachers have often handled this story. In the earlier traditions of the church, the Samaritan woman was celebrated as a witness to Christ. She was the one who went to the, to the city and convinced others that Jesus was the Messiah. But in the years following the post-Reformation rise of evangelicalism, with its emphasis on a gospel of sin and forgiveness, preachers have tended to cast the Samaritan woman as a scarlet woman, a sexual sinner in need of repentance. And she becomes an example of Jesus associating with you know, tax collectors and prostitutes, showing that no one is too sinful, too depraved, too other for Jesus. And 
whilst I applaud the sentiment of Jesus going to the margins and the marginalized, there is a problem here, which is that the text offers us no indication that this woman is a sinner. There's no act of repentance on her part. There's no offering of forgiveness to her from Jesus. It seems that within the evangelical tradition, at least, she has been demonized where no demons reside. Scapegoated for a sin she hasn't committed. All in the interest of the proclamation of a gospel based on sin and repentance. Looking for sin where sometimes sin isn't even present in order that it can be repented of. And I wonder if there are some of us here today who have been similarly demonized and scapegoated. Told that we are sinful, shameful and marginalized because some aspects of our personal story or identity don't match the dominant conception of who or what a good Christian ought to look like. Whether we're talking here about ethnicity or gender or sexuality or economic status or mental health or disability, many people today find themselves cast into the same space as the Samaritan woman in some interpretations of her story. Because those who would perpetuate a gospel of sin and repentance all too often require others to deny who they are, to change who they are in order to fit normative narratives which suggest that without repentance there is no salvation. But I don't think this matches the story as we encounter it in the Gospel of John. This woman is not sinful. She has no need of repentance. And those who have made her so have asked her to carry a shame that is not hers to bear. In fact, in John's gospel, sin has nothing to do with past actions or present indiscretions at any point. Rather, within the scheme of John's gospel, sin is always an indicator of a broken relationship with God, with the presence of Christ always seeking to restore broken relationships. But there's another side to this too, which is the desire of some preachers to rehabilitate the Samaritan woman, to cast her as a hapless but virtuous victim. You may have heard sermons that have sought to do this. This woman is, is just innocent at every turn. She's just a victim at every turn. The problem with this, as my friend Meredith Warren points out, is that attempting to rehabilitate the Samaritan woman reinforces normative feminine sexuality. Just as it is unacceptable to demonize the Samaritan woman, so it is also unacceptable to try and rescue her, to impose, uh, to, to rescue her to some imposed definition of normality. The truth is we don't know why she had been married five times. The most plausible scenario is that it is a combination of divorce and widowhood. 
It may be, for example, that she was unable to have children and so was divorced by a series of men, each seeking to secure an heir. It may be that her living arrangement with the man who is not her husband is the result of the complex arrangements demanded by Leverett marriage law following the death of her final husband. Maybe. But the truth is we don't really know. And so we cannot impose upon her a normality that her abnormal and unusual situation resists. I mean, this isn't normal. It wasn't normal for a woman to have found herself in this situation, which means this is a situation that resists normalizing every bit as much as it resists condemnation. And again, there will be those here and those known to us who have been subjected to normalizing pressure pressured to cast themselves in roles that alleviate the shame that society would otherwise heap upon them. There will be those who we know, there will be some of us, whose personal story defies convention and who constantly find themselves with others trying to rescue or rehabilitate them by the imposition of normalization narratives that are not theirs to own. And this can be every bit as damaging as the tendency to demonization. What if some people don't need rescuing and don't deserve demonizing? What if they need neither rehabilitation nor repentance? And what if the Samaritan woman is one of those? And so what's going on with her? Why does Jesus raise the subject of her marital status in the first place? Well, I think the clue is in how she responds. When she goes out at the end of the story into the Samaritan city to tell what has happened to her, she simply says to her countrymen, he told me everything that I have ever done. What convinces her and her fellow Samaritans that Jesus is a prophet is not that he forgives her, or that he rescues her. She doesn't need rescuing. She doesn't need forgiving. Rather, what convinces them that, she is a, that he is a prophet is that he sees her and that he knows her. This is the understanding of prophet as we find it in the Old Testament. Not someone who receives secret knowledge from God to proclaim, but somebody who just sees and knows where God is in any given situation. He sees her. He knows her. What she meets in Jesus is someone who meets her as a fellow human, as an equal, in full knowledge of all the complexity of her backstory. Jesus neither judges nor normalizes. He places no expectations upon her in terms of change or status. Rather, he offers her a gift, a new experience of being human which he says will well up in her like a stream of living water. This isn't Jesus exercising some creepy telepathy to read her darkest secrets, a prospect which many of us even today find a deeply terrifying one. Rather, it's Jesus knowing her fully, seeing her completely with all that that involves and welcoming her as she is 
in, to be part of this new family of followers. And this surely is the message of good news that is symbolized by the metaphor of water bubbling up to eternal life. We've already seen water transformed into wine at the wedding of Cana. We've already heard Nicodemus challenged at night to be born of both water and the spirit. So we already know that water is symbolic in John's gospel, that it points to something beyond itself. And this is what we meet here, not in the darkness of night as it was with Nicodemus in the last chapter, but in the brightness of the noonday sun. Some have suggested she went out there at lunchtime because she was ashamed. That plays back into the, the sinner demonization narrative. I don't think that's right. John's gospel puts her there at the middle of the day because it is the point where the light is the brightest, the contrast is greatest with the nighttime visit of Nicodemus. She is a woman who meets Jesus in the brightness of the day. And they have their conversation about water from the well. Water from Jacob's well might quench a person's thirst for a while, but the water of life that Jesus offers, the gift that fills a person to overflowing, is a new relationship with God which fulfills our deepest needs, not once, not just today, but in an ongoing, life-supplying way. Samaritans and Jews had been arguing for centuries about which mountain God dwelt on, about which high place you needed to go to to encounter God. But the proclamation that Jesus the Jew gave to the Samaritan woman was that God is no longer to be found on either mountain. The argument between Jews and Samaritans at this point is rendered null and void. The prologue of John's Gospel has already promised that the word has become flesh. The creative and wise word of God is no longer found through the words of wisdom or the edicts of the law, but in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. God in Jesus is the one who can tell us everything we have ever done because the noonday light of his presence casts the light on all shadows and secrets, on all shame and insecurity. All of these are vanished and banished to be replaced with the light of life and the water of eternal life. And this means that wherever Jesus is, God is. Wherever Jesus is, God is. God is at large in the world, beyond boundaries and borders, outside of temples and sanctuaries, taking residence in the hearts and lives of those who follow the invitation of Jesus, drawing all humanity into a new relationship with God, where people are fully known, fully seen, and fully loved. And so the Samaritan woman tells her friends, and they too recognize the good news of a new relationship with God. They come to believe in Jesus, not because they have concurred with statements about him, but because they experience relationship with him through the testimony of the Samaritan woman. The point of God becoming human the good news of the incarnation is that it reveals the deep relationship that God desires to have with each of us. You see, salvation is never about abstract assertions. 
nor about dogmatic declarations. And it isn't about some future hope for a better life to come. Rather, it is about entering into life eternal in the present. It is about drinking deeply from the water of life today. It's about experiencing the abundance of life that the new relationship with God established in Jesus brings in the here and now. And so as we conclude our thoughts on this story, and there is so much more that could be said, I want to leave us with the words of the unnamed Samaritan woman, and I want us to hear her challenge to us as it was heard by those in the city in Samaria. Her witness to Jesus is framed as an invitation and a question. Come and see, she says. And then she asks, surely this cannot be the Christ, can it? God is not encountered in the certainty of faith, but in the mystery of a question. Witnessing is not about offering people statements of certainty. It is an invitation to a relationship. And yes, life is complex. And sure, life does not always work out as we planned. But in the complexity and uncertainty of life, the offer of a new relationship with God and the summons to a new way of being, these are the gifts of the living Christ that well up in our lives like a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And as my friend put it, in the church of St. Dunstan in the East. Well, who wouldn't want that for their life? Thank you, Simon. I'll invite us to take a few moments of silence to reflect on what Simon's been saying, and then I'll invite our panel to join the discussion. Thank you. Can I say good morning to our panelists, please? Thank you, Tim. And Tommaso and Odoka are online. Good to see you both. Thanks for joining us. Oh, and Philip, too. Brilliant. <laughs> I haven't got two things. <laughs> uh, okay. Philip, do you want to come in and then we'll come back to Adoka in a moment? Well, the, these are groundbreaking verses, or many of them. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we have the revolutionary factor of Jesus breaking down all the barriers of separation, um, especially ethnicity and gender. One massive um, instalment of that, which stands out. Um, <clears throat> the woman, too, uh, quite extraordinary. She's obviously on a mission. She has a gospel to proclaim, um, proto-evangelist, uh, proto I would think, um, almost like an early Christian suffragette. Um, in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So she was out preaching the gospel. So we have it all there from women, and you know that line of argument. I think uh, these, verses can be summed up by acceptance, 
love and redemption. Now, water. Um, this is very interesting and fascinating to me. Um, I, somebody asked me a while ago, um, in a school I was in, I think, did I have a favorite psalm? And it's a funny sort of question. Um, people, I'm told, are often asked this. Do you have a favorite psalm? Well, <clears throat> certainly one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 46. And it has this lovely, I think, beautiful verse in it. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Growing up um, in Pembrokeshire, in Wales, um, schools and the chapels particularly were forever singing versions of this. It came up in competitions uh, endlessly. You turn up at one chapel and you'd know there'd be a version of there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And of course this psalm doesn't always, just doesn't have that. It has two other verses which are also important. I think God is our refuge and strength and what we were singing, I think, a few weeks ago, the be still and know that I am God. All of these things are in Psalm 46. And to take the scripture just on a little bit further to John chapter 6, we've had the water of life, and here we have a conjoinment of two aspects. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the challenge, I think, as the challenge here is, how can we be or remain topped up with this water? How can we practice and grow a cherishing of this water of life, especially daily, whereas that other hymn says, though oft the lamp burns low. That's, I think, we've got to put into the context of the water of life and to see and to test how we can maintain that and drink daily spiritually, not just literally. Thank you, Philip. I wonder whether the uh, sound is now clear to hear your voice, Adoka. Good morning. Morning. Can you hear me? We can. Lovely. Please give us your perspective. I think that... Um, it's always very moving and very necessary to explore what it means to have a faith that is not existing in the fear of condemnation. Um, even acknowledging the centrality of forgiveness and the fact that it's always there and renewable and all we have to do is ask for it. Um, I think that the spectre of condemnation, especially for women um, and women accused of sexual sin <laughs> um, or um, having committed sexual sin in the past, it's, it's such a redemptive passage to explore. Um, just because so many people's faith is existing in the state of fear and feeling trapped um, and overexposed in the eyes of God, as opposed to feeling seen. Um, I think that it's, there's, a, there's a tension between um, what Simon highlighted and the idea of like Jesus being able to know your deepest thoughts and know all your secrets and um, feeling exposed in, in a negative way, almost like you're a turtle turned on your back um, and, and a Lord that sees you as you are um, 
and always will do and loves you so completely. Maybe the knowledge or the understanding that the Lord offers is the same in either um, depiction, but the sense of wholeness and the sense of um, welcome, which is so central, um, it's profoundly different. And I think that's what I feel most encouraged by, um, not in the idea that I can be completely perfect or, or that, that I am loved most in my state of perfection, um, but that I don't even need to come with um, this sense of um, disgust maybe or towards myself or anger towards myself or wrath because even when I might feel those things, um, even when I might be disappointed in myself or even my, when I might feel the leftover, like a hangover of a more maybe patriarchal or um, judgmental reading of scripture, um, God loves me at every single stage of that journey. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing so courageously. Really appreciate your input. I think the phrase that struck me as being fascinating was when the woman goes back to the Samaritan she says he told me everything I'd ever done in my whole life well that's not contained in the passage uh, it just a, a brief summary of her marriage history is given but she thinks she, she's been told everything she's ever done quite interesting Tommaso what, what struck you when you were listening to that uh, reading and Simon's reflection on it well, thank you, Duncan, and thank you all for having me. I think what struck me the most in this passage is both the beauty and the simplicity of the scene. Uh, on the surface, the dialogue, especially at the beginning, seems to be very basic, the kind of small talk we all do, perhaps, when we meet a stranger. And 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 yet, the, the meaning actually gets deeper and, and more profound, and this also made me think of how many opportunities we may have um, to link ordinary experiences in our daily lives uh, to issues, questions, and dilemmas of much greater significance. And secondly, and very briefly, just to build on what Philip said, the episode, I think, made me reflect on the importance of sharing water in, in this case um, for a bridge building, so to speak. Um, you know, the importance of sharing to foster relationships, including relationships with people of different backgrounds and ethnicity. And I particularly like the way in which Jesus breaks a sort of unwritten social norm between Jews and Samaritans and uses that as an opportunity to engage with a woman, creating a bond with her and generating trust as a result. Um, I'll stop here. Thank you. Yeah, it's very interesting. No, I, I hadn't seen that, that point as clearly as you said it, Tommaso. It's a cross-cultural dialogue, isn't it? Um, and also, I think you, you, the other point you said was the, the richness of the dialogue in the passage at the beginning. And it's one of those parts of the New Testament that almost feels like a play. When Hazel was reading it and doing the two voices of the woman and Jesus speaking to each other, there was a real dramatic quality to it. Tim, what stood out for you? Um, I think what stood out for me is 
We always think it's a great story, but I think the way Simon opened it up for us was even a greater story. So we're not sort of guilted into repentance and we're not sort of pushed into trying to be normal. And I think the good news, especially in today's society, we're, I think with social media, so many people are trying to be normal, to fit in, to be approved. And, and there's a message in this story for, for those people, for all of us. It's good news, it really is. What I really, really loved is that um, she, she posed that question at the end about, you know, can this be the Christ? Or it, surely it's not the Christ, can it be? Um, and that sometimes God is not encountered in the certainty of faith, but in the mystery of a question. And I, I think that's one of the comments that's there as well. I can just see that. But so for any of you today who are sort of like worried that you aren't certain about your faith and what have you, but you have questions, and maybe that's where you meet God is in those questions. God delights to put your arms around people, have a question, and say, yeah, I'd love to, let's get, let's get to know each other more. Thank you very much, Tim. And I can see there's a further discussion about the passage um, in the comments on Zoom. We've, we've, we've covered quite a lot of ground here, so um, perhaps we can continue as we um, talk to each other uh, online or in person ahead of our church meeting this afternoon. But thank you very much to all our panelists for the uh, very insightful comments. Tommaso, would you like to lead us in our prayers of intercession, please? Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, we thank you this morning for your generous blessings, for your fortifying presence, and for your message of hope and reconciliation that lifts us all. We too are thirsty. Every time we drink water that is not yours, we too feel lonely. Every time we follow norms, messages, and principles that drive us away from you, we too are lost and grope in the dark for a way out of our troubles. Every time that way and that search are not enlightened by humbleness, healing, and forgiveness, as Jesus taught us through his example. We bring before you this morning our aspirations, our hopes, and our pain. For we know that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light, as in you we find rest for our souls and the wholeness we cannot experience anywhere else. May we learn to enjoy the beauty of the creation meeting people who may subvert our false pictures of heaven and make us aware of the richness, complexity, and range of nuances of the world that surrounds us. Loving God, we pray for those who are target of hatred and subject to deprivation, often due to our inability to build better more human, less unfair societies, in which we feel a genuine sense of obligation towards one another. May we resist the temptation of worshipping material prosperity, treating it as an end in itself rather than a means, 
And may we envisage new tools, devices, and techniques to mobilize our unparalleled resources, energies, and talents to the benefit of those who are in need. Loving God, we pray for those who suffer from countless forms of exclusion, discrimination, and marginalization, some of which we cannot even think of, even when these happen in broad daylight, and when, from time to time, we play some role, directly or indirectly, in protracting and strengthening them. For our understanding of what is right can be too narrow or too self-serving. May we appreciate we can do our bit to challenge injustice whenever it creeps into our communities, individually as well as collectively, provided we are guided by love and mercy. Loving God, we pray for those who have been crippled economically, physically and mentally by the pandemic, whose costs are not yet clear, but whose impact still requires collective action to mitigate its dreadful consequences, especially for the most vulnerable. As we grapple with fractured systems and broken relationships, and our confidence in government is sometimes dented by unsettling news, parliamentary inquiries, and police investigations, may we keep our faith and our balance, realizing that whatever mistakes have been made in managing COVID-19, efforts, sacrifices, and the widespread commitment to caution and self-restraint since early 2020 have not been in vain, as they saved lives and keep saving them, especially, but not exclusively, in those countries where vaccination rates are low. Loving God, we finally pray for ourselves. May we be freed from the burdens that have been placed upon us and from the evils that beset us, as you are far mightier than these, and yours is the power to include, to alleviate, to transform, and to redeem. Amen. May the God of comfort console our troubled hearts. May the spirit of the risen Christ lift us above the world's conflicts, and may the Father of all compassion fill our hearts with peace. Amen.